0: to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash Detectives. A reminder to follow or subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcast software, including tune in apple podcast the uh, iheart radio app or the amazon music app at amazon.com/otrdetectives i also want to encourage you to check out our other podcast in particular uh, we have our volume 1 feed at volume1.greatdetectives.net uh, there you can listen to our first 3 seasons in the original listening order Currently, we have 440 plus episodes for your listening pleasure, with episodes being added every day, Monday through Friday. Check it out over at volume1.greatdetectives.net. Well, now it is time for this week's episodes of Dr. Tim Detective. This week's episodes are The Man from Trouble Creek and The Second Alarm. This is Dr. Tim, detective, to bring you, by transcription,
1: the mystery of the man from Trouble Creek. It was Jill, my landlady's daughter, who first brought the case to my attention. You see, Jill and her pal Sandy have helped me out on a lot of my cases, which are usually of the sort where mystery and medicine are combined. This morning, Jill and Sandy were standing by while I was looking for some rare but dangerous microbes under the powerful microscope I have in my laboratory. I don't know how the conversation started, but I remember Jill asking suddenly...
2: Dr. Tim, you don't always get paid for your cases, do you?
1: Well, I'm not suffering from any want, if that's what you mean. I have standard fees for my crime investigations. I
2: don't mean exactly that. I was thinking of charity work.
1: Well, you see, Jill, those are things that any doctor just naturally does in the course of events without any thought of reward.
2: But would you help out a person? Just somebody in trouble the same way?
1: Of course I would. Any doctor would. If you knew the number of free cases that doctors handle each year, you'd faint.
2: Well, this isn't exactly a medical case. Well, it sort of is, too, but...
1: There's something up your sleeve, isn't there?
2: Well, I just kind of feel sorry for her.
1: Oh? For whom?
2: Mrs. Edwards. She's a friend of mother's, and she hasn't any money, and a family to take care of, and... Well, gee, Dr. Tim, she sure needs help bad. You see, her husband's sick. I mean, that isn't the worst part. He's disappeared. I thought maybe you might talk to her,
3: and maybe you're...
1: Might... And that was the way I first learned of the strange disappearance of Arnold Edwards, the man from Trouble Creek. Later that afternoon, Sandy and Jill brought Mrs. Edwards to my office.
3: You see, doctor, my, my husband and I live on a small rented farm at Trouble Creek. We have three tiny children, and well, things just haven't been working out. In a money way, I mean. Well, gosh, don't they
4: have places where you can go and get some
3: help?
1: Now, Sandy, just wait until Mrs. Edwards has finished her story.
3: Everything went along pretty well, until my husband started feeling bad a few months ago. He tried awful hard, but he just couldn't seem to get the farm work done.
1: Just what kind of illness was it?
3: I don't know. It's awful hard to get a doctor, and, well, there was the money, too, He, well, he complained of feeling tired, and and he lost a lot of weight, and I thought he looked like he had a fever.
1: Hmm. Did he cough?
3: I don't remember. Oh, yes, he he did have a bad cold.
1: How long did it last?
3: That's the funny part. It never did seem to go away. It wasn't bad, but... But there was that cough that seemed to come back all the time. Gosh, Dr. Tim, what good are all
4: those questions? He just walked away from home and disappeared.
1: Well,
2: yes, and even the police can't find him.
1: Now, look, you kids. Every mystery has a number of causes, and you can't know too much about the background of everybody concerned in one. If you think detective work or medical work either is just a matter of chasing around and getting into exciting scrapes, you'd better think again. All right, Mrs. Edwards,
3: go on. Well, well, finally, my husband did ask the county nurse where to go for help. And she told him to come to town, here. That was three weeks ago. And I haven't heard a word from him since. Oh, Doctor, isn't there something you can do?
1: Well, there I was. You can't say no to an appeal like that. And besides... She was Sandy's and Jill's own case, if you want to put it that way. The first time they'd actually come to me for help. I may be a sucker, but I just can't seem to turn down people in a jam. Mrs. Edwards was staying for a couple of days right in the house as a guest of Jill's mother. So I decided to find out as much of the picture as I could. First, I called the missing persons bureau of the police
4: department. Sure, doctor, anything you want. You've given us enough help in your time, but I'm afraid there's nothing here on it usual routine investigation. Yes, we've checked the hospitals, the morgue, looked in on the missions for destitute men, Salvation Army and all that. No luck. After all, the man isn't a criminal, and there isn't very much to go on. Yes, you're welcome.
1: I tried a few leads of my own, including a telephone call to the county nurse. But she was away on vacation. I was sure she must have given Edwards a card or letter to some specific medical agency. And so the next thing to do was to make a thorough check of all those. On the fourth call, I found what I wanted.
4: Yes, doctor, we gave him an examination. His skin test, x-rays, a thorough checkup. Yes, tuberculosis. A pretty advanced case, too. No, no address except the farm at Trouble Creek. No, no, he came back in person, and we advised him of what the matter was and what to do. He disappeared. Well, that's
1: odd. No, I haven't the slightest idea. Yes, you're welcome. And there we were, at a dead end again. It wasn't even any news to me to discover that the Welfare Medical Center had diagnosed Edward's disease as tuberculosis. From what his wife had said, the conclusion was obvious a loss of weight, a wasting-away process which gave the disease its original name of consumption, the fever, the cough, the tiredness, and inability to work. All those were signs that the dread tubercle bacilli, the cause of tuberculosis, were at their deadly work inside his lungs. If the man was to live, those lungs must have rest, complete rest to allow the healing processes of nature to do their job. That meant a hospital, specialized care, months, perhaps, of expert attention, but why had he disappeared from home? It wasn't until the day that Mrs. Edwards left to go back to Trouble Creek that things began to make sense. Sandy and Jill dropped into the laboratory, and Sandy announced proudly, Well, I guess we aren't so down.
2: No, sir. You said you got background about everybody in the case, and we've got it.
1: Hmm. Well, let me disinfect my hands. I've been analyzing some poisons. Maybe we'd better have a conference. Find yourselves a chair there.
4: Okay.
2: We've got everything written down in the notebook. First, I want to say we interviewed Mrs. Edwards thoroughly.
4: An excellent idea. Okay. Arnold Edwards, 39, farmer, born 1909. Two brothers, one sister.
2: I guess that's just like the way you put information down about your patients, isn't it, Dr.
4: Tim? Oh, exactly. Went to school through the sixth grade, then had to find work because of family.
1: I must admit that after my week's rush of work and the extra task of trying to locate the missing farmer... I began to nod as Sandy and Jill, in turn, went through the long and irrelevant history of Mr. Edwards' life. I thought with a wry smile that I'd done my work too well when I suggested that backgrounds were important in a mystery. I hadn't the heart to cut them off. And then, coming to attention at a word or two after what seemed hours of case history, I snapped suddenly, Hey,
4: go back there a few words.
2: What was that you said? You mean about Mr. Edwards' matter?
4: Here it is. Mrs. Edwards. Quote. Two years ago, my husband's mother died. That was just before my youngest baby was born. She had lived with us What did she die of?
2: She had a, uh, it says here, a hemorrhage. Hemorrhage? Uh-huh, of the lung. Now,
1: hold on a minute. Answer this carefully. Did Mr. Edwards realize that his mother
4: had died of tuberculosis? Oh, sure. His wife said it was a very sudden thing as far as they knew
1: it.
2: And the doctor talked it over with him. Gee, I thought TB took a long, long time to kill anybody.
4: Not necessarily.
1: Many times its onset and the resulting death are very rapid.
2: Anyway, I'm lost. Do you mean Mr. Edwards could have inherited it from his mother?
1: No, 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 no. Tuberculosis can't be inherited, but it can be transferred through contact. Anyone who lives with a tubercular person should have frequent x-rays and tests to determine if he has gotten the disease. Hey, what does all this have to do with Mr. Edwards' disappearance? It gives us the reason... Without a doubt. What? Just this. I'm sure the doctor who attended old Mrs. Edwards informed her son of the dangers of getting the disease by association. Well, when he suspected that he, too, had it, he took the only course. He made sure by a medical examination, and then, rather than expose his family to TB any further, he did what he considered the only possible thing. He disappeared from home. Probably to die somewhere alone.
2: To die? But he where? Can't he be cured?
1: It can. It's dropped from first to eighth place as a cause of death just in the last two years, thanks to medical science. Then we can save him. We can, and we will, if, and it's a big if, if we can find him. Now, go on with that background information. There were two clues to Mr. Edwards' probable whereabouts. The fact that before he became ill, he was interested in raising chickens and had hoped to experiment with breeding them to develop some new strains. The second point might or might not be important. He had been a bricklayer at one time in his life. And so, the search was on. We drew blanks on both scores. I was sure that our missing man would not be well enough for the heavy labor of laying bricks. But with the help of a picture which his wife had mailed us, we canvassed every building contractor in town. We did the same with every poultry raiser in the district. None had hired Dejected, we had just about decided that our man had left this part of the country when a telephone call came from Mrs. Edwards at Trouble Creek.
3: Doctor, I've had a letter from him from right here in town. All he says is that I should worry, just to forget it, And he'll send whatever money he can until he dies want me to find him for the good of myself and the children. Oh, doctor, please, please find it
1: for me. By this time, both the kids and I were frantic. I'd spent so much time on the case that my regular work was going into a mountain of back-breaking labor. And the farther away from a solution the matter looked, the more determined I was that I was going to save a stubborn human being from the death that would surely come unless I could find him and persuade him to enter a hospital for treatment. That doggone fool, I thought. Doesn't he know there are special hospitals right here in the state for TB patients who can't afford to pay? It had been over a week since our search had started. Was it possible that it was such a short time? Wearily, I threw myself onto a chair and tried to think. Standing and Jill knocked quietly at my
4: door. Come in. I guess, huh? No. Gosh, we feel kind of like heels not helping any. I guess there isn't anything else to do. I'm afraid not, kids.
2: We thought maybe we'd go see the state fair. Tonight's the last night and I sure hate to miss all the roping and the rodeo and the exhibits and everything. Yeah, it's
4: really going to be a Lulu. Want to come along? Oh, I'm afraid I'm too tired, kids. You go on. You wouldn't have to do much of anything. If you don't want to watch the show, you could just wander through the exhibits and think. Hardly anybody's there when the show's going on in the arena.
2: Well, Sure. They have lots of interesting things. Rabbits and funny-looking ears of corn. And the craziest bunch of birds and chickens you ever saw. Why, some have feathers clear down to the ground and colored top nuts. And they don't even look like chickens, lots of them, and...
1: chickens.
4: Good gosh, do you Don't it? even
1: stop to talk. Get me my hat and coat and let's get in that car, but fast. It's our last chance! <laughs> A half hour later, I walked quietly up and down the aisles of the almost deserted poultry exhibit of the fair. My heart was beating fast. I glanced from time to time at the picture in my hand.
4: One false alarm. Two. Three. And then... You look lost, mister. Is there something I can do for you? I work here, and if there's Yes,
1: there is. I have a message from your wife, Mr. Edwards. Now, I don't want you to say a word. I want to talk to you about finding a hospital that will cure you. All those lungs need is a rest. Simple surgery, if needed, can do much to make you a new man. Your family have been examined and haven't taken the disease. Your wife is heartbroken. And your kids are crying for you. So how about it, fella? Shall we talk? is Dr. Tim, detective, to bring you, by transcription, the mystery of the second alarm. Well, the first caller who knocked on the door to my laboratory and consulting room one morning a few weeks ago was a woman in her early thirties who gave her name as...
5: I'm Mrs. Huey Miller, doctor, and I live in the next house just beyond the vacant lot.
1: Won't you sit down, Mrs. Miller?
5: Yes, thank you. I've been told that you're both a doctor and a detective.
1: Yes, you might call it that, but I don't, as a rule, take private cases. What is your problem?
5: Well, I have every reason to believe that my husband's father, who lives with us, is well—not quite right, if you know what I mean. And in the next place, I think he's hiding a fortune.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm afraid I don't quite see what. Well,
5: I thought you might examine him. You know, put him away somewhere for a little while.
1: But that's a matter for a psychiatrist. You'd have to get his consent or else fill out papers in a legal... Oh,
5: no, no, no. That's just what I don't want to do. There mustn't be any publicity. You see, what I want is to get him out of the house long enough to make a thorough search of his room. He never leaves it. And I'm sure he has thousands and thousands of dollars hidden in that room somewhere. I've almost caught him several times. But he's too... well, too crafty.
1: Mrs. Miller, what you're proposing is highly irregular, perhaps even criminal... I'll forget what you've told me, but I... Just at that moment, there was a disturbance in the hall outside. I recognized the voices of my two friends, Sandy and Jill, and a third I'd never heard before. Jill is my landlady's daughter, and Sandy's a paliper. I opened the door, and into the room they walked, with a policeman, grasping each one firmly by the arm. You the doctor? Yes. These kids say they they're friends of yours.
5: I'm a doctor, him. We didn't mean any harm.
1: We're just having some fun. Gosh, how are we you know them? Setting fire the weeds in the lot next door they was. And if I hadn't been walking along on the way home...
5: Oh, he, well, he said he had it better than jail.
1: Now, hold on a moment. Both you, kid. Officer, I think we both realize how serious setting fires can be. Burn the whole neighborhood down, playing with matches, they will. Well, we didn't mean... Anything. However, I can vouch for them if you'll... Just own...
5: one moment, officer. I'd like to say that it isn't the first time they've been in trouble for setting fires. Oh, are you all right? After all, I've lived on the other side of that lot for several years, and I can tell you... I looked at Mrs.
1: Miller in amazement, and I should have been able to see right then what she was getting at, but I didn't. Jill and Sandy don't ordinarily play with fire, and they aren't problems to the neighborhood. I ought to know, because we've been friends a long time, and they've given me some mighty valuable help in my cases. Anyway, within a few minutes, Officer Barton had turned them over to my care with a warning. Mrs. Miller had left after glaring at me with a look of hatred, and Sandy, Jill, and I were alone. From their looks, they were sorry kid, And I could tell they were expecting to really catch it this time. There they stood, silent and scared. Finally.
2: Hey. Dr. Kim, we're dopes.
1: Bigger dopes than you realize, maybe. Let me see your hand, Sandy. Oh, it's nothing. Just burned it a little. Jill, hand me the sterile bandages. Okay. Thanks. Ow! Hold oh, still until I get a dressing on that burn.
2: But aren't you going to put grease or something on it?
1: I am not. First, I'm going to clean the hand thoroughly to prevent any infection. Ointments and greasy medicines many times are the best means of spreading infection in burns. Of course, if it's a very severe burn, certain infection-stopping drugs are necessary. Why, it hurts! I could say at this point, young man, it serves you right. Now, hold still a moment. Yes, you're lucky. Ever see a human body with really bad burns on it? The kind you might have had if your clothes had caught on fire in that vacant lot? No. Well, not in a pretty sight. It can mean months in the hospital. Infection's so bad to look at, it would make you sick at your stomach. Pressings in burn cases often have to be changed under an anesthetic like ether because the pain is so terrible. Then you go through more months of operations where skin is taken from unburned parts of your body and grafted to the places where the fire is burned clear down into the muscles. Sometimes you wish you'd died. You'd be scarred forever. Yes, doctors today can save the lives of people who have lost 70% of the skin in their bodies. With penicillin, with blood transfusions and blood fractions, and with modern hospital care. But believe me, it's the most horrible pain in the world. All right, Sandy, you'll burn his dress. I'll look at it again tomorrow. Above all, don't break those blisters.
4: Okay, Dr. Tim.
2: to gosh, Dr. Tim, we'll never play with fire again. <laughs>
1: About a half hour later, Sandy and Jill had gone to think over what I'd told them, I hoped. And before settling down to some chemical tests I was making in connection with a murder case, I happened to glance out of the window. Mrs. Hugh Miller, whom I'd almost forgotten in the excitement, was walking towards her house with a bundle under her arm. It was a rather sizable package in somewhat odd shape. And I didn't think much about it at the time. Instead, as I worked with my laboratory apparatus, I pondered upon the fantastic story of old Mr. Miller, her father-in-law and the mysterious treasure he was supposed to have hidden in his room. i had talked to him a few times, as neighbors will, the summer before. I'd put him down in my mental notebook as perfectly harmless, but a little queer. When the First World War had ended back in 1918, he'd been with the Army of Occupation in Germany for a while. He had a pension, he told me, and had decided a year or so ago to come live with his son and daughter-in-law. That was all I knew, except that his health was none too good. And he rarely left his room these days and hadn't been out of the house since fall. But where Mrs. Hugh Miller had gotten hold of the idea that her father-in-law was hiding a treasure, I couldn't imagine. I wish now I'd taken the trouble to think things through, even talk to the old man. It might have saved a lot of suffering. <laughs> It was just getting dark when I finished my lab test and glanced out of the window that faced the Miller house. I rubbed my eyes and looked twice. For at that moment, there burst out of the Miller's back door an apparition wrapped in flame. If it hadn't been for the dreadful scream that burst from it, I would never recognize that flaming torch as a human being. In one bound, I was out of my door, over the fence, and running toward the Miller's. Sandy and Jill were in front of me. From which direction they came, I didn't know. Still, the flame-covered creature ran around in circles. I shouted, Sandy! Jill! Stop him! Stop him! Don't let him
5: run! Grab a blanket off that clothesline and wrap him up in it. Okay,
4: Dr.
1: Tim. Before I could reach the Miller yard, Sandy and Jill had both made flying tackles at the flaming figure and were rolling him over and over in the dirt, smothering out the flame with a blanket. The moment I joined them, the thing—for that's the only way to describe it now—was still, except for a moaning sound that came out of his burned and agonized face. Oh, Lord, I thought Why will people run when their clothes are on fire? To lie down and smother the flame is their only salvation I was giving the man, for it was old Mr. Miller First aid when his daughter-in-law came shouting out the door Help! Fire!
5: Fire! Gosh, I'll bet she hasn't even called the fire department i call them
1: But Mr. Miller went running back into the house, as Jill told me later And was telephoning when Jill came panning up to her By this time, the whole neighborhood was gathering around the house, and it seemed like hardly a moment after I turned again to the suffering figure lying on the grass that the fire engines came charging up, followed by an ambulance, a squad car, and all the rescue apparatus. The fire was quickly put out. It was only after the old man had been put into the ambulance that I had a chance to notice what was going on. The first thing I heard was Mrs. Miller
5: shouting. They did it. It was those two kids right there. You know yourself, officer, that you caught them setting fires this morning.
3: But how do you know they did?
5: I saw them running around the corner of the house just after I noticed the blaze. And I'll testify in court that they did it.
1: Well, you two kids, I don't know whether you're guilty or not, but I'll have to take you down to the station for questioning. A few minutes later, the officer had left with Sandy and Jill. Both of them had thrown me anguished looks, but were bravely holding back their tears. I could have done something, I suppose, but there wasn't time. I had to get into that house as quickly as possible. I was beginning to put two and two together, and I was certain that what I would discover would solve a part of the mystery, at least. I knew who had set that fire, and why. Whispering a few words into the ear of the fire chief, I saw him nod and lead the way into the Miller house, while Mrs. Miller was still talking excitedly with the neighbors. I hoped Mrs. Miller wouldn't see us go in, or she might destroy the very evidence to prove my case. It was at the door to the old man's room I found the first thing I was looking for, a home fire extinguisher, empty. The rug and the bedclothes were burned, and the room was filled with smoke. But aside from this, there was little evidence of the fire. On my hands and knees, I sniffed at the floor. There was an odor of kerosene, faint but recognizable. One more thing remained to do. I lifted the phone, dialed a number, waited until there was an answer, and asked one question. Hello? Dr. Tim speaking. Yes. Will you give me the exact time of the first telephone call to report the fire at 1216 East Beaumont Place, No, no, not the second. The first thing I did after finding out about those calls was to call the doctor at the hospital. The old man had a chance to live, thanks to the prompt way in which Sandy and Jill handled the emergency and to modern hospital care and medical advances. He'd been treated with a new technique discovered during the war, the use of pressurized Vaseline, Blood transfusions, blood fractions, all the miracles of modern science were being used. Then I hopped into my car and went down to the police station. <coughs> Two scared kids
5: facely.
4: me. I, Dr. Dr. Jim I
1: know you didn't, kid, and I'm sorry I had to let things go as far as this. The real criminal's been arrested. And Officer Barton says to tell you he never really believed you set that fire in the first place. But he had to question you because of what Mrs. Miller said.
2: Oh, he treated it swell, but who did do it?
1: Yeah, that's what I want to know. Well... It was a person who called upon me this morning. I'm afraid she got the idea of how to scare an old man into disclosing the hiding place for his money when Officer Barton brought you into the office for starting fires in the vacant lot. You mean Mrs. Miller? I do. I should have known when I saw her walk past my window with a fire extinguisher. Wrapped up, but still, I should have known.
2: But, gee, what happened?
1: Well, she meant just to scare the old man so he'd grab his money out of the hiding place and run. Everything went fine, except Mrs. Miller was too smart. She called the fire department first and then started the fire. I thought the trucks got there too quickly after the first alarm, which was really the second.
4: And gee, I'll bet she put the fire out with the extinguisher or almost out so it really
1: wouldn't burn the house down. Exactly. And then blamed you two kids, which shows the importance of a good reputation. She almost got you convicted because of the fire this morning.
4: Yeah, hung the rap on us, by golly.
2: What about the you? Yeah,
1: no, I guess we won't know the answer until old Mr. Miller can talk. And there was no trace of it. Sure there was. I've got it right here in my pocket. The
4: old man was clutching it in his hand when he ran out of the house.
1: Sandy handed me the remains of some charred banknotes. In one corner of each was printed the figure one million, five million, fifty thousand. 50,000. Not dollars, but marks. Worthless, inflated German marks of 30 years ago. Not worth the paper they were printed on. You see, the old man had picked them up while he was in the Army of Occupation in Germany and had thought for years they'd be worth something, that he'd become a millionaire. And for that, he had almost lost his life. That and one other reason. When Mrs. Miller's plan had miscarried, and she'd set him on fire, too, he should have remembered the most elementary thing in the world. And that's don't get panicky. Don't run, even toward water. Just lie down and roll, or wrap yourself in something to smother the fire. I'll bet Sandy and Jill never forget it. This is Dr. Tim, detective, saying so long until next week at this same time, when Sandy, Jill, and I will bring you by transcription the mystery of the dog that did and didn't.
0: Welcome back. So let's go ahead and talk about these two cases in order. Uh, The man from Trouble Creek takes American listeners, back to a time most of us can't remember, when TB was a major killer. In the Dr. Tim episode, it's described as one of the leading causes of death in the United States. And as late as 1960, there were more than 10,000 tuberculosis deaths in a year. It wasn't until 1999 that deaths in the United States from tuberculosis dropped below 1,000. And since 2007, the number of deaths have been between 470 and 585. And keep in mind that the United States is a much larger country than it was when we had numerically a lot more TB deaths. And in fact, tuberculosis is a plot element in a lot of golden age entertainment. So many radio programs and movies involve people having TB and needing to move to Arizona for treatment. To say it's not a major health crisis in the United States, and we do have our shares of major health crisis here, is not to say that it's not a problem for the rest of the world. In 2021, there were 1.6 million deaths due to tuberculosis. About 187,000 among people who had the HIV virus. The program here is meant to educate folks who might have some outdated ideas and not know what medical science was capable of doing for TB patients. Now, the man from Trouble Creek's birthday does suggest an earlier date than the air date for when the adventures take place. Now, plot-wise, we can keep in mind that uh, Dr. Tim is telling these stories in past tense. The other thing is that when you are dealing with a program like this, there can be a great amount of time in between, you know, coming up with the concept, writing the scripts, getting the funding, hiring the actors... And then recording them, so a discrepancy like that is kind of to be expected. The second alarm that poor elderly guy. But I have to say, you brought home some marks after World War One, and in 1948, or you know 1949, or 1950, you know, whenever the recording was done, aired was in 1950. And you, he thought they were still valuable. Um, you know, there was a thing called World War II that happened, and that should have pretty much given you a hint that they were not going to be worth anything. The prevention information that Dr. Tim gave to Sandy and Jill seemed pretty sound to me, much like the type of thing that I was told when I was growing up. He was... Probably a bit more stern than a modern-day doctor would be. But I think, in fairness, they kind of earned it. Though, obviously, there have been some more uh, progress on the treatment options. But, you know, even 73 years later, it's not something that you want to have happen to you. But another uh, interesting couple of episodes... I hope you enjoyed them. Now let's go ahead and thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Robert, Patreon supporter since August of 2020, currently supporting the program at the Shamus level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Robert. And that will do it for today. A reminder, you can... Subscribe or follow the podcast using your favorite podcast software, including Google Podcast, Overcast, or the Amazon Music app at amazon.com slash otrdetectives. If you are enjoying this podcast, please rate and review it wherever you download your podcast from. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of Dr. Tim Detective, but join us back here tomorrow for Dangerous Assignment, where... Hello. Oh, I didn't
6: see you in the dark.
0: (laughs) Looking for somebody? Old boy.
6: Yeah, room two. Well, no, no, quite a coincidence. That's the door I'm standing in front of. So I see. You mind getting out of my way? There's a guy in there I want to see. Weather? I wonder why. It doesn't happen to be any of your business. Oh, I think you're mistaken there, old boy. Quite. Yeah? Look, old boy, if you don't get out of my way... So you want to see Webber. I get it. You stand out here and stall me while he goes out the window. Now, look. Why don't you look instead? Here. Huh? I'll turn on the light for you. Hey. Go ahead. Take a good look. Brother. From ear to ear. Quite. Which brings me back to my original question. Why did you want to see Weber? Before I answer that, I want to know who's asking it. Name's buried. Inspector, that is. I see. Well, as long as we're getting official, you better take a look at my credentials. Hmm. Oh, what
0: ho? Washington? Yeah. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at radiodetectives And check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.